Welcome to another episode of Theo Podcast, The Pandemic Press. I am your host, Rashni Hevawasam, and we are coming to a close for this year with our final episode. And I like to end it with um, simply someone who's like more experienced than me, who has learned through their life and what it has taught them. And basically, he's going to also talk about how his journey is thus far and how he kind of found his purpose in life. And I would say, like, the stories are pretty similar, but his is, like, more intense because we come from um, the same kind of, like, a toxic environment, I I would say. But um, I guess... Some people are just warriors. And what I found out with him is that um, we're both warriors. You know, we are still fighting in our lives. And I'm only 26, but he and he's like a father to me. I welcome Aura to the show. Introduce yourself. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, Roshni. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, my name is Aura and um, my uh, pen name or I, I guess it's my pen name. Uh, I go by the informationless or the informationless. Uh, my podcast and network and business is called the Network of Awareness. Um, it's a podcast radio show. I am based out of Florida in the United States, originally from Bronx in the New New York City, and um, happy to be here. So you can start by uh, saying a bit about your background because you have a really interesting life. Well, my, my background is is one of a lot of uh, turmoil at a young age and a lot of um, adversity. Uh, My life started out with adversity, even from birth. But my, you know, my background, I don't have my formal education is high school. I had got a scholarship to Fordham Preparatory in uh, the Bronx, New York from it's the preparatory Uh, high school for Fordham University. But even though I had a scholarship and um, I had a lot of intentions on going to college, going to Annapolis, I um, I wound up dropping out of high school at a very young age. (laughs) And um, I I say that my 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 educational background is the university, as I was telling you, the University of Universal Principles. Uh, because when I dropped out of high school, um, I sold drugs. Um, and I, I, you know, it's not something that I'm proud of, but being a 15 year old young man or a teenager, 
Um, I had a lot of turmoil at home. Uh, didn't have a bad home environment, but it was toxic. I had a stepfather that was very uh, mentally abusive. And um, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be there. So I wound up um, selling drugs. And I transitioned after selling drugs to just uh, working certain jobs. Like one of the first jobs I've got was a public relations official at a homeless shelter. And I then transitioned um, into a hip hop career because I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a poet. I always wrote rhymes, poetry since seven years old. So I started a hip hop career professionally with a group called Chosen 33. And I did a lot of shows and I never signed with any record label. Uh, thankfully, I think I was guarded because in the music industry, there's a lot of uh, satanic um, ritualistic behavior that goes on behind the scenes. That we and never know, yeah. We never know. I didn't, yeah, and I didn't really realize it at the time, but there were certain situations that I came into, some dealing with like homosexual behavior and stuff that I was seeing and stuff that, I, you know, people were trying to persuade me into and i'm a heterosexual man so i i wasn't gonna go down that route and um i also had a lot of the you know how you know that saying where but uh did they like force you to be homosexual no not at all okay. the, the way it works is they don't force you to do anything they 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 uh they persuade you and they try to hypnotize you with money and women because it doesn't just it, it's not outright they're not going to just say hey let's have sex together it just doesn't work like that first they get you with the women then they get you to try to participate in orgies now i want i want the the listeners to know that that's not something i did i <laughs> just want you to yeah. i want to let you know how it works uh something that I could tell you like just a very it was very subtle. I met a record producer uh, that was very well known. And uh, he when he was introduced to me. He caressed my hand. In a very. Uh, sexual way. And it scared the hell out of me. Um, but one of the real reasons why I never went forward with signing with every record companies, because the people that I was doing music with which were my friends. And one of them was a very close friend to my, to, to, to me. He was like one of my best friends. I consider him like a brother. He was very jealous and envious of me. And there was so many different situations where he would hinder our progress based on his jealousy and his megalomaniac behavior. Uh, Cause he, you know, he, everything had to always be on him. And I was more about the collective. I was more about the group and having everybody be successful at the same time where he wanted to just have success for himself and then have us under him as his minions, so to speak. So I faded away. I should say, uh, yeah, the proper term is I faded out of the music industry not too long after I had my daughter. I would say about four years after having my daughter at the age of 25 years old, I slowly went into uh, what you call the average Joe lifestyle, (laughs) 
where I got a job and I <clears throat> I always worked in insurance for a long time after I left the homeless shelter as a public relations official. I was always good at marketing. I worked for a couple of advertising companies and I was an insur I became an insurance broker and a public relations official for health insurance, um, supplemental insurance, life insurance. I, I held like seven different licenses in, in, in three or four different states. But I was never really fulfilled selling insurance. I was just more interested in the money that I can make in a very short period of time. Because as you know, when you work on commissions, it's all based on your effort. So I would work these jobs that are full commission and I would literally bust my butt. And by the way, I won't curse on your show like I do on mine. Okay. But I busted my butt and, you know, I would make a substantial amount of money. And then the rest of the, the week or weeks, I would just, you know, procrastinate on, on work and go have fun. Fun, fun, fun. And becoming a father really changed my life, too, because I want the listeners to know that when I was a younger man, when I was in my um, early 20s and late teens, um, I was very promiscuous. And uh, I wasn't a womanizer, but women wanted to sleep with me. And I, you know, I never passed up the opportunity. And um, it was it was getting really bad. And I think that the most high really stop me in my tracks you know it was kind of like having my daughter was a wake-up call to be like you can't live like this no more you can't be sleeping with multiple women but because I wasn't really as spiritual as I am now I really couldn't understand that until I had my daughter and then it went from lots of women to no women <laughs> and and it was a good thing for me it was a, it was a you know a blessing in disguise to be honest with you and then I transitioned from selling insurance for a long time to eventually coming into the network of awareness, which was in 2020. And it was really January 2020, but I really started, I didn't start broadcasting until March. Then I had technical difficulties, got really into it in June of 2020. I bought all this new equipment that you see around now. And, um, really started to pursue my passions. And one thing that I forgot to mention too, is I used to be an executive producer when I was your age for a radio show that was on the AM station in New York. It was called the Rockland report. And the show would talk about current local events in the community, as well as promote local independent hip hop artists. I came on as an executive producer also became a radio personality. And I did that for a while. So I'm not really new to the radio podcasting game. I was doing podcasting before it even was called podcasting. I was actually streaming before streaming was even popular. And it's like, sometimes I kick myself in the butt. Like, I'm like, if I would have just stuck with the platforms that I was a part of and, and evolved from there, I'd probably be on Joe Rogan status right now, you know? So I but everything that, happens for a reason. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, I don't know when you're with a crowd, uh, like when you're in and trying to fit in with the crowd, I don't think that you are able to see everything. You are being blinded by the crowd in some way. 
and when you uh, finally isolate yourself thinking okay where society is going is not where i want to go and when you start taking yourself out from society you start seeing things more clearly everything's not you're not seeing things through a rose colored glasses you're seeing things for what it really is and uh <clears throat> i i definitely agree with you on that one because um I was seeing things for what they truly are. I was getting the red flags on a regular basis because even though I may have not been living, I would say the, uh, uh, an honorable righteous lifestyle, so to speak, I definitely, um, was a spiritual person in the sense that I was a good man, even a good young man. I was a good person. I wasn't, a scumbag or somebody that was just when you're around me feeling uncomfortable. I was a really good person. I took care of people. I helped out a lot of people. My challenge was, and it stems back from my childhood, is that I always had a dysfunctional family. I'm the youngest of four siblings by 10 years. So by the time I was four years old and my parents divorced, I kind of grew up by myself even though I had siblings that were older. But because there's such a generational gap, I'm the little brother, you know, I'm the baby, literally. Yes. Like, that's what I was. And I, you know, I had my older brothers and my sister. They still look at me like that today. And I'm 43 years old. They still look at me like that's my little brother, you know? So there's this generational gap that I didn't really get to develop relationships with my siblings, like somebody that would be in closer age range. Even though I do have a relationship with them, it wasn't something that was cultivated at a young age. It is actually cultivated, you know, when we were adults. And what happened to me was my stepfather was always putting me down and he would do it in very very uh unique ways he was very smart very intellectual man had a degree in psychology and all that so it was a battle of wits between him and i and it's just gonna make you laugh because he's so much older than you yeah your stepfather right oh yeah of course yeah my my stepfather was you know he was an older man he was around my mom's so age why the you know? competition like i don't understand it's, it was part of his character, but it was also the fact that he had kids of his own that he really wasn't a father to. And I think that he wasn't a bad man. It's not like he abused me physically or anything like that. And he was a responsible man. We, I lived in a decent home. Uh, my mom worked really hard, so I didn't miss out on meals. I had clothes. I had Nintendo. I went to Walt Disney and all that stuff, you know? that most kids don't get to do. I got to do all that stuff. Problem was, is that my, I think my stepfather looked at me as something that was in the way of what he actually wanted was really to just be with my mom. He didn't really want to take care of any kids. So he was always trying to put me in boarding school. But my mother didn't want to do that. You know, my mom wanted me around. So what's interesting is I used to read his books at a young age. I'm talking about seven, eight years old. I'm reading psychology books from college. 
And I've always been a very spiritual kid. I've always been protected. I've always been very intuitive, very observant. I, I, I was just an old soul, so to speak, as a young child. And people would always tell me that. They're like, you're different. I'm a thinker. You can, you know, I can stay quiet and I have a hundred billion thoughts racing through my mind on a regular basis. Almost like an autistic person. Even though I don't have autism, my brain does work like that. I have thoughts racing all the time. So it's hard sometimes to keep up with them. And sometimes I have to quiet my mind sometimes because the thoughts are just racing as I'm always analyzing, always observing, always perceiving things from the deeper core of it than the normal person would. And with my stepfather, who um, I would be in the house with or, you know, just in, in the home on a regular basis, what we would do is it was a battle of wit. And the, the battle that I used to have with him for years was who was going to get my mother's attention? Who was going to get my mother to do what we wanted her to do for us? So I'll give you an example. Eight or nine years old. His favorite meal is a meal called Monfongo. Have you ever heard of it? No. It's a Spanish, you know, meal that a lot of Puerto Rican people eat. It's kind of like, a, I guess, like a, a green banana or something like that. I don't know. It's, it's a delicacy of food, whatever. Very common in, in, the, in our culture. That was his favorite food. So my favorite food was chicken cutlets with corn and mashed potatoes at the time. So let's say, for example, my mom comes home from work and, you know, he would say, you know, honey, uh, you know, you're going to make that mofongo today. And I'm like, I would go, I don't want mofongo. I want, uh, you know, what I just said, the corn, mashed potatoes, yeah. chicken cutlets. And then it was a battle of wit. Who was going to manipulate my mother to get her to cook the meal that we wanted? And a lot of times I would win and sometimes he would win. And that dynamic played out in every aspect of our relationship and lives in that household. That was my childhood. He was the type of man that when my friends would come to the house, he would crack jokes on me in front of my friends and make me the butt of jokes. What's interesting is, and I want the listeners to really understand this, especially if there's any young people listening that maybe are experiencing something similar to this or something very identical to what I'm saying is that, and I'm not going to curse because <laughs> this, uh, there was a thought in my mind. And I, I mean, this was from five years old until the very day that he passed away. And when he passed away, we actually established right before he passed away. We lived together, just me and him. And we established a relationship where there was a lot of closure. Um, for me, letting him know that even though he put me down, it made me stronger, that he wasn't going to defeat me spiritually, mentally or anything. So. Every time you would put me down as a little kid, there was a presence there. There's like I feel like there was a guardian angel in my life that was always there. It's very similar to the, the, the being that presented themselves to you. Yeah. The difference between you and I was that I never could really see it, but I knew that there was something in the room 
all the time with me. Kind of like that thing where it says you can see the footprints in the sand. Yes. I had that feeling on steroids. Like as a little kid, I felt that there was some spirit always with me, guarding me. You were on steroids. Weird. Yeah, you were, you were on steroids. No, no. I said that it's just a term we use here in the United States. Okay. Like it's basically something being accelerated, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like even like when I was like telling some people about this thing, they are like, my mom is the only one who was like, she's not taking any drugs. She's not drinking anything. She's she does. She doesn't. She doesn't smoke at all. You know, uh, you know, Rashni, she wanted to do med medical college. She's not that person. And yeah, my dad was like, you at least check her room. And uh, yeah, and it's like, because um, I think they, because they live in this kind of world that uh, the culture is right. They think their culture is absolutely right. And if, they, if I see something totally different to the culture, it's, it's kind of disapproving at work first, you know? Yeah, I, I smoked a lot of weed as a teenager. Uh, I started smoking weed as a teenager at 15 years old when I started selling heroin. And I'll, I'll talk about that, about those experiences, because those, the, whew, well, boy, the stuff that happened during those years was crazy. But the, there was something in the room all the time with me when he would put me down where it was reminding me to not believe anything he would say, to not get caught up in what he does. Because I was meant to do great things and that I was going to do great things when I get older. It was letting me know that on a regular basis, but it wasn't talking to me. It was doing it like telepathically, almost like if I was downloading a certain vibrational frequency. And that frequency was reassuring me that my life was destined for greatness. And when I became 18 years old, my godfather who's a medicine man in three different continents. He goes by the name of Aguilar. He did a ceremony with me in our Borican culture, which is the indigenous culture of the island of Puerto Rico that was called Puerto Rico. I want people to know that, that Puerto Rico was called Puerto Rico by Christopher Columbus and Ponce de Leon and those people. But the actual real name of the island is Borican, and it's a Hebrew word for land of the brave. And that's where my roots come from. So... At 18 years old, after I had stopped selling drugs, my godfather told me that um, he says, you have a great purpose in life. He says, you're going to be a messenger for the creator. And he was like, any, any ceremony I've ever done, I've never seen the creator come up in the ceremony. And I was like, what, what does that mean? He was like, I can't tell you. He says, you have to figure that out. But when the time comes, you'll know. And I was just like, all right, whatever. You know, I didn't really understand what he was talking about, how that I was going to be a messenger. But now in my older years and all the things that I've done, especially in my music career and my poetry and, and the messages that I gave in my music, and now with my radio show and the other things that, I, that I'm involved in, I very much know now that I am a messenger, that I'm a messenger for the most high, and that my message is to let people know that they have light within them and that they need to 
open up that light for the rest of the world to see that their life has significance and importance. And uh, the clip that I put for that audiogram I sent to you, you, you covered it perfectly where you said that everybody has talents. And I think that's my purpose is to let people know that they are gifted, that they have light in them and to not get caught up in the dark malevolent forces that plague this world. And I think uh, now more than ever, you see that. And when I sold, when I sold drugs, I was selling heroin at 15 years old on one of the worst streets in New York city ever known in the history of the city. I saw people die. I saw people get stabbed. I've seen people get shot. Um, I've seen people overdose. Um, I've seen some of the craziest fights that that you that are like 10 times better than anything you'll see on uh, on TV or in the movies. Yeah. Um, you saw the live show, like the like live thing in, right in front of you. Yeah. And, and just to let the people know, because I'm kind of going all over the place here, but when I was 15, I ran away from home. But I didn't just run away from home. I ran away from a whole different state back to New York. My mother sent me to Florida to live with my sister in Hollywood, Florida. I wound up because I was uh, a drug dealer. I wound up I was dealing with men that were in their 40s and 50s at 15 years old. And these men kept me safe and they looked at me as a cash cow. Because I was very good at bringing people together and getting people to execute plans so i wasn't the type of drug dealer that was doing the hand-to-hand i started out like that for a couple of weeks but i quickly got promoted to being a manager or director so to speak in the drug game and then wound up owning my own drugs to to have people sell for me and when i was in in that time my mother found out because i wasn't going to school So I would act like I was going to school. I put my book bag on, you know, I'd be like, hey, all right. (laughs) Meanwhile, you know, I'm taking a train or a cab. I had a personal chauffeur and everything that would pick me up two blocks away from my home, drive me down to uh, Manhattan from the Bronx. And then I go conduct business and make several thousand dollars a day as a 15 year old kid. And um, what's interesting about that is that when I was doing that, my mother found out sent me to Florida. She wound up going in my room and taking all the money that I had stashed under my bed. Cause my mother's very nosy like that. She, you know, she's going to investigate, you know, yeah. she's going to be all up in my business. So I come home, my money's gone. I'm like freaking out. She's like, Oh, well, I'm going to send you to Florida for a couple of weeks. I was like, all right, I'm only going to stay there for two weeks. So when I got there, my sister, you know, my sister's a very uh, she's not the nicest person in the world. Let's just put it like that. And. Um, what wound up happening is my sister, um, she uh, she's like, hey, you're going to stay here for the rest of your life until you graduate from high school. <laughs> and she's like, I'm going to put you in karate. You're going to you're going to you're going to get a tutor, all this stuff. And I looked at her like. I'm staying here for two weeks and that's it. And I'm out. And she's looking at me, obviously, right. Being the oldest sister by 10 or 11 years. She's like, whatever, you little boy, you're going to stay here in my house. 
go take a shower, get ready to eat dinner, and you're going to bed. So I was like, all right, whatever. Two weeks passed by. I had a, a sky pager at 15 years old and a cell phone. Now, the cell phone, my mother took that. But she didn't take the sky pager because the sky pager was on me when I got back home. So I don't know if you, well, you may not know this because you, you know, you're a lot younger, but do you yeah. remember the big cell phones back in the days? Oh, yeah. The, what? Like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually graduated from that to a, a Motorola flip phone. I thought I was the man at 15 years old with a flip phone. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, that was my, I think that was uh, my first like phone, but I didn't have a chip for it. Then I had the Sony Ericsson. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I had the phone, the first Motorola phone that came out that was flip phone where it had a green screen and all that. I also had a Sky Pager. Sky Pager, a lot of people that, you know, if you don't know, Sky Pagers were actual beepers, but they were the first technology to present text messaging and i think about that to this day what you would do is let's say you wanted to contact me so you would call this 800 number that i would give you if you wanted to reach me you call the 800 number a woman picks up and says what's the message that you want to deliver to reggie because that's my legal name reggie right so you go oh Tell them that I want to meet him at such and such place, blah, blah, blah. She types it up. That signal goes to the pager and reads out on the green screen. It just goes by like this. So you read that, you get the message, whatever, or you make the phone call if they want you to call them. So these men that were from originally from Puerto Rico, they were gang members of a, a gang called Nietas. So they're, they're trying to contact me and they're like, what the hell is going on? Where are you at? You, you know, they, they thought I was dead or something happened to me. They was all worried about me and it messed up their business. They weren't making the type of money that they normally make because I wasn't there. So they contacted me, said, hey, you know, what's going on? I said, hey, my mom took all my money, had a plane ticket for me to go to Florida. I'm in Florida right now. I'm like, they're like, you're in Florida. So I'm like, yeah. So this is like 10 days already going on. So I was like, they were like, what do you need us to do? I said, I need you to get me the hell out of here. Send me a plane ticket. They sent me a plane ticket on Delta. Now, this was in 1992. Now, in 1992, for those that don't know, a 15-year-old kid could go on an airplane with no supervision. And it wasn't like it is today with 9-11 happening and everything. The, the, plane, the, air, the airports was not as strict as they are now. So I had a plane ticket waiting for me. I coerced my brother-in-law to, to, to meet me at the airport because him and my sister worked there. They worked for American Airlines. I got my sister's uh, best friend to drive me to the airport. Persuaded her to do the same thing. I was very good at talking. And manipulating, getting people to do what I wanted them to do. Got the, the friend to drive me. Next thing you know, I took a flight. I wrote my sister a Dear John letter <laughs> saying, hey, I love you. Sorry, but I, I told you I'm staying here for two weeks. And it was exactly two weeks. My brother-in-law told me she cried for two days. 
And um, I was in I was back in Manhattan, but now I was in Manhattan as a fugitive from my family. I was a runaway. I was on the back of milk cartons. And um, the stuff that I experienced, I had a three bedroom apartment as a 15 year old kid that they hooked me up with the, the people that I was dealing drugs with. And what's, what's interesting about that time, Roshni, is that I was around killers. I mean, people that actually committed murder several times, multiple individuals. And what's interesting is that I was never nervous. And I never, I, I, it, sometimes I would just like come home to my apartment and be like, what the hell's going on here? Because I didn't come from that, that upbringing, even though a lot of my family grew up in the projects. And I, you know, I, I was in, I, I got to see the ghetto firsthand as a young kid. And, you know, I got to see pissy elevators and drug addicts, all that stuff. I was around that stuff a lot. But I didn't come from that home environment. My home environment was nothing like that. I lived in a, in a house with a backyard and a dog and a garage. And I had my own room with G.I. Joe pajamas and, you know, like, but living in New York City, no matter where you live, you're going to experience that. You know, you're going to get into a lot of fights. I got into a lot of fights. I was bullied a lot. Um, and the reason to go back to why I even started selling drugs is because when I was 15, going on 15, um, I was set up to get killed by one of my best friends. Because before I sold heroin, I was selling marijuana in high school. So I was making a lot of money. One of my best friends, who's no longer here, and I'll, I'll tell you why, he uh, got jealous. And he started stealing from me. But I was always a happy-go-lucky guy at that time. You know, I would give you the shirt off my back, anything you wanted me to do. I was very, like, gullible, very, like, just naive. Like, if you could, you could be stealing from me and you tell me, no, I'm not stealing from you, I'd be like, all right, I believe you. And that was my relationship with him. So I cut him off, told him that I wasn't selling drugs no more, which was a lie. And on Christmas Eve, he set me up to get killed. And sent two guys to try to kill me on Christmas Eve while I was walking home with a friend late at night at 1130 at night. And the only reason I didn't get killed is because they couldn't find the money on me. And the money was in my back pocket in a wallet, which was kind of weird. Like they didn't search my right back. They searched every pocket you could possibly think of on my coat because this is wintertime in New York. So it's cold. And right before he was going to uh lunge the knife he had this big butterfly knife he was gonna stick it in my stomach and this guy was known the guy that that he sent to rob me with this other guy they were from the projects and they were known for being bad kids like they, they this was not something new for them this was routine they were called stick-up kids there's a term called stick-up kids these are these are guys that rob people for a living and um right before he was gonna stab me they saw a police car, but the police car wasn't coming for us. They were just driving. So the guy goes 5-0, 5-0, and they just start running. And I didn't get stabbed. Yeah. So story with you as well about that. But that situation with, uh, with my friend setting me up, uh, it traumatized me greatly, and it shifted 
my whole entire paradigm in life. That happy-go-lucky kid that was always smiling and cheerful and always, you know, give you the shirt off his back. He died that day. Um, and ever since that day, I became a different person. I became the type of person where it was like, and I'm still like that to this day. It was like, I will, I will not allow somebody to ever get the best of me or take advantage of me like that ever again. And if they do, they'll, they'll regret it. That was my mindset from there on out. It was kind of like, no more being a punk. Those punk days are over. And that's when I started selling drugs on 110th Street between Lexington Avenue and Park Street and Park Avenue in Manhattan. And uh, I was recruited by a friend of mine and I was broke. You know, I was a, a 15 year old kid that wasn't selling weed no more. And I was actually trying to do the right thing. I was playing basketball, going to school and running track. I was a track star. And, you know, my friend had these big, big wads of money. And I just got, you know, sprung off the idea of that I can make that money. And I did. I, I never forget. I took a train on a Sunday morning at six o'clock in the morning. And I went from literally being a kid going to school to selling heroin to dope fiends and it literally happened overnight and then i just never looked back at that point and then a lot of uh things happened that woke me up to the reality of this world and how things are and you know i feel i always tell people i feel like i was being recruited by satan i was being recruited by demons and the, the crazy part, like I mentioned to you, was that I was never nervous, even though I was around people that were killers. But what was interesting is those same people that were killers kept me safe. Now, this is going to really interest you, what I'm going to tell you right now and your listeners. And I'm going to tell your listeners, if you don't believe that we are spiritual beings having a physical experience, I don't know what to tell you, because that is our true reality. And anybody that thinks otherwise, they're very much lost because we are spirit before anything else. And when we leave these bodies, it doesn't end. It keeps going. Energy does never dies. So I'm six months into this drug dealing lifestyle. I'm renting cars. I'm, you know, I'm still a virgin. I got a bunch of girls that like me. And I, and, and I had a, a 21-year-old girlfriend. At 15 years old that didn't know I was 15 years old. She thought I was 19 because that's what I told her. And I never forget this because I think about it now. I think the only reason she believed me, I had a little bit of peach fuzz on my lip. You know, I had a little, I had, I had some hair on my, on my lip from shaving. It started growing in a little bit. So I, I guess I looked, I didn't really look old though. It's just all the money I had. I think in her mind, this 21-year-old woman was like, in her mind, she's probably, there's no, even if she thought it, they would be like, there's no way in hell that this kid is 15 years old having this amount of money. So I never forget one day I uh, got her a cab. And before she went in the cab, she goes, you know, we've been dating for like two months, right? And so I was like, yeah. And she goes, why haven't you never kissed me? <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> But I'm a virgin. You know, I wasn't like into girls like that. I like girls. I was attracted to them, but 
I was a nerdy kid. Like, I, even though girls liked me, I was always nervous around them. I was shy. <laughs> you know, it was just like, oh, I don't know what to do. You know? Yeah, I, I have that feeling also. It was throughout the throughout my life. I was like, how am I supposed to approach boys? <laughs> but like, yeah. I, had, I had like a lot of friends as boys, but I can't get past that. <laughs> I could tell you that for me. I have women pursue me very aggressively. And that's the only reason I had sex. The only reason. Throughout like my young years, even my 20s, if it wasn't for women being aggressive with me, I'd probably still be a virgin up until 25 or 26 years old. But because women pursued me so much, it was easy for me. It was just like, go along. Because if it, if it was up to me to do the work and pursue the woman, it would have never happened. But going back to when I was 15, 16 years old, there was a man named Mark. And I want people to really understand what I'm going to say right now, because this is a very uh, supernatural experience that I had. This man drove a soup truck and would feed the homeless. And he's supposedly represented a a non-denominational church in Manhattan. He would come up to me and say, brother, you know that God has a great purpose for you and Satan is trying to recruit you, right? He goes, you know why Satan is trying to recruit you? And I'll be like, why? You know, I'll just look at him like, whatever. I'm like, why? What's why Satan trying? He goes, because he knows how powerful you are. He goes, you don't even realize how powerful he's like. You have no idea. And I said, oh, I get you. I bet you're going to tell me, though, right? And I was very disrespectful, not disrespectful, like cursing him or anything, but it was like I was very sarcastic with him. But he was so peaceful. He was like six foot four. Big man. Big black man, uh, very muscular. But he had this peaceful spirit to him that it was almost like I would I, I, I would be apologizing to him after we would talk because I felt bad. And he just didn't even care. Like, he's like, that's okay. He's like, I'm here for you. And he would always come around. And when he would come around, sometimes he would appear out of nowhere. It would be like one minute I'm like right here. And I look to my side and he's right there. And he's like, brother, you know, you got to come back home. I'm here to bring you back home. You got to go back home. You're not supposed to be here. He's like, the devil is trying to recruit you. Satan is trying to recruit you because he knows how powerful you are and he wants you to join his his army and he wants you to serve him because if you get to serve him, then he's going to take away something that can happen for God that you're not going to be able to do for God now. And he's trying to stop that from happening because he knows how powerful you are. And if you get to do what you're meant to do, it's going to take away power from him. I'm getting goosebumps as I say this. So, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like, that is so true. What you just said that it is, it's a challenge for like every human being. It's like, um, we, we, it's like we're trying to figure out our purpose, but society takes away our concentration, our focus, our knowledge. It's like, don't go there. It's like, it's dangerous, but it's not. It makes me fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. And and to be honest with you, I knew that I wasn't a drug dealer because I was the type of drug dealer that I, I 
it was so there's this um this man he's um he's an electrician and he was heavy into heroin i mean his life was spiraling down this man was making like five thousand dollars a week as an electrician for macy's and i saw his life literally spiral down in a matter of six to seven months and i never forget this day he came up to me you know He's got his wife in this his pickup truck. He's got his kids in the back seat. He's got a bunch of like clothes and furniture. And so I'm like, you know, like I believe his name was Robert. I was like, Robert, what's going on here? Like, what 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 happened? He's like, Oh, you know, I lost my job, got evicted, you know. So me and the family are trying to figure out what we're gonna do next. But he's like, you know, man, I'm really sick. Can you help me out? I got this amount of money. I can buy this amount, but can you give me a little bit more and I'll pay you back? And I looked at him and I never forget. I looked at those two little kids in the back. I believe he was an Irish guy. And I looked at these little two kids and they looked so sad and I, it broke my heart. I looked at him and I said, Robert, I gave him, a, you know, I gave him what's called two bundles which is 20 bags of, of heroin, he gave him 20 bags of heroin. I said, Robert, I'm going to give you this so you and your wife can, can get, your, get over your sickness. Because, you know, if heroin addict doesn't get their fix, they get sick. And it, they just go into convulsions, vomiting, all that. So I said, get better, but do me a favor. I said, I better never see you come back on this block or anywhere around this neighborhood. And I said, you know, I know people up to 109th Street all the way to 125th Street. So if I even hear that you've gone to somebody else, I'm going to whip your ass. I'm going to get somebody to beat you up so bad that you're going to wind up in the hospital. I said, so make sure you never show your face here again and take care of those kids and get your life back together. I was like, do it for your kids. Do it for your wife. And he was like, thank you so much. And you know what? He never showed his face there again. As far as I know, while I was there. But going back to Mark, he uh, he would this man would just pop up out of nowhere and always telling me these very positive messages about how I have great purpose in life. So now fast forward. I'm 18 years old. I'm reuniting with my girlfriend, my first girlfriend. Her name is Selena. All right. And she looks like kind of like you, like she's she looks Indian, but she's Puerto Rican. A lot of people think she was Indian, you know, and same complexion as you. And it's funny because it's my first girlfriend. And I loved her so much. But because I sold drugs, she left me. Which is the best thing she could have did, to be honest with you. And to this day, I tell her, like, I, you know, she has like two kids, you know, from other from another guy. She's not I don't think she's in a relationship anymore. But I always tell her, like, damn, man, I wish I would have never did that because who would have known? I probably would have married her, you know, but it is what it is. Everything happens for a reason. So fast forward, I meet up with her after a couple of years of not seeing her. And I meet her at her sister's house. She goes do you want to come with me to church with me and my sister and her boyfriend? So I'm like, sure, I'll go. Cause I, you know, I wanted to spend time with her. So I stayed over at her sister's house. The next day we go to, um, 
to this uh, church. Now, I'm going to stop right there because I'm kind of going, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like one of those movies that goes from the beginning to the end. And then, you know, so going back to this guy, Mark, he stopped showing up. Now, I'm already about a year run away from home. So many stories I could tell you, but I'm, for, for time's sake, I'm not going to tell you everything that happened to me because it's just too much. We, we would be here for like five, six hours. But one significant thing that happened that brought me back home. Roshni, I was gone for a year. OK, so imagine your parent, imagine your mother not seeing you for a year. She would definitely cry. I mean, she complains like she complains about me a lot, even when I'm not doing anything bad. I mean, like, yeah, she, yeah, she has this my competition kind of mindset. But when I'm gone, it's like she she's like she acts like she's lost everything, you know. Now, imagine. And that's but she knows where you're at. Yeah, you're just far away. Yeah. Imagine you just left one day. And nobody knows where you're at. But what, how she would feel, right? Just put yeah. that. I want you to kind of put your mindset in that frame of mind for a second. Think about how she would feel. She would probably be depressed, yeah. crying a lot, right? Um. So one day, it's about 11 o'clock at night. I'm on the block doing what I do, doing my hustling thing, just watching my workers, you know, making sure everything is good. I'm drinking a coquito. It's like an icy that uh, is in our uh, the Puerto Rican culture. So all of a sudden, I'm looking around. Nobody's around me, though. Everybody's up the street and down the street. Everybody's talking, doing what they do. And nobody's paying attention to me. Not that they should, but I was just noticing everything was becoming very quiet in the street at 11 o'clock at night. It was almost like I couldn't hear the cars anymore. I couldn't hear the people talking anymore. And all of a sudden, a voice in my ear goes, it's time to go home. So I'm like, what the hell was that? <laughs> like, I was like, even though I smoked weed at the time, I wasn't high. You know, I was very much sober. So I'm like, okay, whatever. Just, you know, went about my business, just standing there. Then all of a sudden, the voice said, it's time to go home. And I was just like, whoa. All of a sudden, I was hypnotized. I look at the train station. I look at some of my friends down the street. Look at my friends up the street. Look at the train station. It was the sixth train. I just start walking to the train station. I walk down the steps, put my token in. I take a train all the way back home to the Bronx. It's around 11.30. Now it's around 12. Get off the train. Walk about 15 blocks up to my house. Knock on the door of my house. My brother's there. And uh, he opens the door. And when he opens the door. My, <laughs> my, my brother looks at me. He goes. Go to the room. I'll let mom know in the morning that you're here. Mm -hmm. But it was like nothing like like if he just seen me yesterday. No emotion, 
know nothing. Just like, hey, how you doing? Go to your room. I'm like, all right. I'm going to tell you, Roshni, even though I have my own apartment, every time I would leave that apartment in Manhattan, every single day, I didn't know if I was going to come back home because I, I knew that there was a possibility that I can get killed. Every day, the possibility or the probability of me getting murdered was about 95% efficacy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It was there. It was present every day, every day. Now, mind you, I told you spiritually protected, right? My, I, that sleep that I had in my bed at my home, my, my house was, a, my room was a sanctuary. It was like candles all over the place. My picture was on this uh, stand with candles around it and flowers. Like It was like I was dead. It was like a, a mortuary or something. And I'm looking at this stuff. So I go to bed. Best sleep I ever had in my life. When I laid down in that bed, I slept for hours. My brother told me that my mother woke up in the middle of the night and saw me and just was crying, hugging me while I was sleeping the whole entire time. But I was in such a deep sleep, I don't even remember that because I didn't wake up. But I can only imagine how relieved my mother was to see me in her in my bed. I and, you know, my mom prayed a lot when I was gone. So now I come back home, right? So we're talking about two and a half years after that experience. I'm already back home, right? I meet up with my girlfriend, Selena, or my ex-girlfriend, and she takes me to the church. So when I go to open these big wooden doors that are at the church in Manhattan, as soon as I grab the handle to open up the door, the door opens up. And guess who opens up the door? Who? That man that I told you about, Mark. Mm. <laughs> he opens up the door. Now, mind you, this guy is big. He's like six foot four. Guy you cannot miss. And he looks at me and he goes, brother, I knew you would come back home. He goes, welcome. He said, go upstairs. You know, he says, enjoy the uh, sermon. I started crying. I didn't know what to do with myself. I started crying like a baby. Now, my girlfriend, my ex-girlfriend is looking at me like, what the hell is going on right now? She's like lost. And I just couldn't even. I was like. <laughs> and he's like, it's OK. He's like, he's looking at me. He's like, it's OK. Just get ahead. Go. You're good. And I'm just like. I stopped crying, but I'm like breathing very hard. My heart is beating super fast. I have. An enormous amount of adrenaline running through my body. And the whole time, I'm not even paying attention to this sermon. I'm just kind of like waiting for it to be over because I want to see him again. It kind of put this all together because it was a very surreal experience for me, very spiritual experience. That's why I always believe in the most high. You can't convince me otherwise just from that experience alone. But what's interesting is that I go back downstairs with her. I explained to her what the situation was. So she was like, yeah, let's go see him. We go to these congregants that are at this window of the church that um, I guess they took people's coats or whatever. So I'm like, where's Mark? And they're like, who's Mark? 
I'm like the big six foot four black guy that works for your church that drives the soup truck. And they're like, son, we don't don't have nobody like that here. There's no Mark here. Soup truck. There's like, we have a soup truck, but he there's no guy that drives it. You know, they're like, they say some other person. I'm like, I said, he just opened up the damn door for me. They didn't know who he was. That experience is ingrained in my spirit. That man, whoever he was, I think he I think he was an angel. I don't know. Like he. It's one of those things where I came and put it into words. It's ineffable, the experience, because it's like, here's a man that's coming into my life, telling me to go back home, go back home, go back home, disappears. Then I wind up going back home without his actual influence directly. Years later, I go to this church and he's there waiting for me. And then he tells me that. Welcome, you know, welcome home. Welcome back. And it was like he I guess he did his job, I guess, getting me away from that malevolent, dark, evil behavior that I was heavily engaged in selling drugs, killing my people. Satan recruiting me and all these stuff that I did. I robbed somebody when I was 15 years old, you know, and it was probably one of the worst experiences I ever had in my life that I regret. But it's like it had to happen. And I've accepted it now. I've, I've forgiven myself for it. And um, it was one of those things where after all that happened, and I got I, I really started getting in tune with spirituality and I was living upstate and I was able to have peace of mind upstate because in upstate, there's a lot of nature. So I would go to these nature spots that's untouched land by the native uh, so-called Native Americans. And I would just spend a lot of time in the woods by myself. And I'm going to tell you something. I found an enormous amount of peace, an enormous amount of a relationship with the most high in that time. And my life completely transformed from there because I didn't I didn't have the hustle and bustle of New York City because in New York City, you're you're. What's that called, Rosti, your um, your sensor, your 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 sensory is it called sensory perceptions is constantly being bombarded your five senses. Yeah. So you don't really have time to think in New York City. It's always about watching your back. Any given moment, something could be happening. So you always have to be alert, 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 alert. And that's how I am to this day. If you was around me, I would be making sure that I know the entire landscape of where we're at, what to do if something bad happens, the exits, who's around me. If they, I could tell if somebody's able to fight, if they're capable of fighting, if they're if they present a danger, if somebody can possibly have a weapon. I have this ingrained in me because this is my life. And I'm still like that to this day. Even my nephew, when my nephew, when I came to Florida and he took me to a party and I was waiting for him while he went to his car. And he's like, he's like, Uncle Reggie, uh, we're in Florida. It's OK. I'm safe. Like, you don't have to worry about me. But it's so much ingrained in me that I'm constantly on that being on guard. So. I want to tell you a story about. A car accident I had, and I've had several, but I'm gonna tell you about one that I had that I think um, 
you, when you talk about the glass hitting your face and all that. When I was working at the homeless shelter, I was uh, supposed to perform in Manhattan, but my director told me that I can perform at the homeless shelter for the homeless guys. And I was going to do some poetry of some spoken word. And there was going to be this trumpet player and this uh, saxophone player that was going to play the music for me. And everybody was excited. But the director pulled the plug on me at the last minute. And I was so upset. I mean, it was infuriated because I'm like, I wanted to represent for my homeless guys that I, you know, that I watch over. Now I got to try to rush downtown Manhattan to see if I can perform with my group at this lounge. So I'm in a little Mercury Tracer. I don't know if you've ever seen those cars. It was like a 1985 Mercury Tracer or 1987. It's a little putt-putt, you know, jalopy. We call them jalopies. It was a stick shift. And every time I drive stick shift, I can't drive stick shift no more because I think I'm Mario Andretti when I drive stick shift. <laughs> I go into like, you know, like I, I just think I'm a speed racer. So I, I, stick shifts are not good for me because I, I will speed. But I start speeding. And this is in Chester, New York. This isn't, you know, like where there's mountains and, and it's upstate. So there's a turn that you have to take at a 10 to 15 miles per hour. Well, I took that turn at 60. So I flew off the cliff. And when I flew off the cliff, my car went straight up in the air and started going down this hill or mountain. And I'm going down, hitting sticks and all this and, and little brushes. And all of a sudden I crash, boom, and the car lifts up like this. And when it lifts up, my head hits the windshield and have my seatbelt on, crack the whole entire windshield. I land, the car lands back down. Now I'm touching myself like this. I'm like, I'm okay. My head doesn't even have a cut on it, but the whole entire windshield is cracked from my head hitting it so hard. I don't have no bruises or nothing. The only thing that I had was a little scrape on my leg from hitting some metal part. And I also had a little bit of uh, tension and pain in my chest from hitting the steering wheel, but nothing too crazy because the adrenaline was pumping so hard that I didn't even feel it. So I thought I had crashed into a tree, but it wasn't a tree. It was a billboard post. So when I start touching myself and I finally realize I'm okay, I look up at this billboard post like this. And there's a big sign that it's holding up off the highway. And guess what it says? Guess what the sign says? Expect miracles. In big, big yellow letters with a sun, with sun rays, with a little sun coming behind it and sun rays just pointing out. And it was a it was an advertisement for a Ford dealership company that's called Miracle Ford, because I saw the little Ford emblem and it's like, come get your car at Miracle Ford. Right. But in big, big yellow, bold letters, it says expect miracles. <laughs> I, can't, I can't make this up, man. Like that and that experience, I'm going to tell you something. I, I was just like. I am here for a reason. I am meant to do great things because I climbed up the mountain, ran to ShopRite, made a phone call to my colleagues at the homeless shelter to come get me. And then I went back to the car. 
Now, when I go back to the car, there's five different state trooper cars all parked on the side of the road and all the state troopers are down the mountain with flashlights. So I'm like, hey, sir, that's my car. And there's like one of the officers goes, that's your car. There's like we're looking for your body. You was in this car. We thought you that the person was dead and went out the uh, and just flew out the car and we're looking for your body. I'm like, no, that's my car. I just climbed up the mountain. <laughs> so he's like, somebody's watching over you. He's like, because I'm going to tell you, I've seen a lot of accidents and I don't know how in the hell that you survived this and not be like at least critically hurt to where we got to, you know, airlift you in a, in, a, in a helicopter or something. I said, I don't know either. Now, I didn't mention anything about expect miracles or anything like that because I'm still stuck. Mentally, like I'm still stuck there where I'm just like, wow, how, you know, I couldn't interpret it until later down the line to where I was like, you know, I, I have a saying that I put in a rhyme where it's like when I look into the mirror, I see a miracle. And when it said expect miracles, my life as a whole has been a miracle from birth until present day. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> that's my car story. So that's incredible. A lot of yeah. a lot of a uh, lot of uh, unique spiritual experience to say the least. Uh, like thank goodness, like nothing happened to you. Like I was, I was like, I was like wondering that at least something would have happened, but like no, thank goodness. Yeah, same thing with the guy almost stabbing me. I got into another car accident where my car flipped four times. Mm. I'm climbing out the car. Three o'clock in the morning. I got little pieces of glass stuck in my mouth, in my gums from the crash. And, and the car flipped four times in the air and, and slid upside down. My head was this far away from the concrete where it could have ripped my head off. And it slid I say about a good hundred. No, I say about a good hundred feet. It slid and stopped. Then a truck was coming while I'm crawling out the car. It was like an action movie. <laughs> I always say it's like a Wesley Snipes movie where Wesley Snipes just gets away from dying in the accident. I was crawling out and I rolled over and the truck just said, boom, and hit the hit the car. And I, I made it out the car in literally a, a second time before the truck hit. Because if I still would have been crawling in that car, that truck would have hit. I'd have been dead. And that happened around three o'clock in the morning. And guess what? I wasn't hurt. When my mom took me to go look at the car and take whatever belongings I had that was still in there. Everything was crushed in the car except for where I was sitting. It was like the mold of my body was the only thing that was preserved in that seat. Everything else was crushed in all the metal. The roof was completely off. All the windows broke. That's how I got glass in my mouth because when the windows shattered, they shattered so hard. There was like an explosion, like a bomb. Yes. It went boom. And then the glass just shattered into my mouth. I had pieces all into my gums that I had to pull out. Crazy stuff, man. <laughs> so these are the types of things I was telling you before when we spoke yesterday about how I have an interesting life and um, I'm just so grateful, so grateful. I mean, there's so much other stuff, but for the sake of time, you know, I, I'm telling you bits and pieces of it 
to get an understanding for the listeners to understand that that we all have purpose and it's time you find yours yeah and sometimes you you get forced into realizing even if you're not somebody who believes in a higher power that higher power will remind you that is very much there and either you're going to pay heed to the messages or you're going to completely ignore them and i feel like the people that ignore them are the ones that suffer and they they just wind up spiraling down and that could have been me i could have been a drug dealer i could have been i could have went to jail you know and the stuff that happens in jail you know you already know it's bad yeah. Men get raped. That was one fear I had of being raped in jail. I remember telling my mom, I was like, if I ever go to jail, don't come visit me. And she's like, why? I was like, because I'm going to turn into a demon because there's nobody that's going to rape me. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to kill, 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 you know, and I'm just so grateful that. I didn't have to do all that, like I didn't have to go through all of that. I was very much spared. I was very much favored in, in having this grace upon me and. This guard, that guardian angel, that that presence that I told you is in my life, it's here right now as I'm speaking to you. It's yeah, very much present in this yeah. room. Even mine. I can show you a picture of it. Sometimes you, you get forced into realizing, even if you're not somebody who believes in a higher power, that higher power will remind you that it's very much there. And either you're going to pay heed to the messages or you're going to completely ignore them. And I feel like the people that ignore them are the ones that suffer and they, they just wind up spiraling down. And that could have been me. I could have been a drug dealer. I could have been I could have went to jail. You know, and the stuff that happens in jail, you know, you already know it's bad. Yeah. Men get raped. That was one fear I had of being raped in jail. I remember telling my mom, I was like, if I ever go to jail, don't come visit me. And she's like, why? I was like, because I'm going to turn into a demon. Because there's nobody that's going to rape me <laughs> like I'm, I'm going to kill, 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 you know, and I'm just so grateful that. I didn't have to do all that, like I didn't have to go through all of that. I was very much spared. I was very much favored in, in having this grace upon me and this guard, that guardian angel, that that presence that I told you is in my life. It's here right now as I'm speaking to you is yeah, very I much think, present in this yeah, room, even mine. I can show you a picture of it, but I'll take this off from the scene. I saw her. She can I see that? Can you pull it closer to the camera? Wow. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. Wow. Like I saw her like in the flesh right next to me and like she was like touching my hair. Like that. She's a, she's that a, looks like a, she's that a, looks like a queen or something from ancient times, like a Hebrew yeah, she or is, no, she's not Hindu actually. She's no, I was saying like Hebrew, like a, yeah. she looks like a black woman, you know? Yeah, she is a black woman. Uh, she's um, from the Yoruba culture. Okay. So, wow, that's interesting. I see. I've never seen the the spiritual being that is present that that guards me i've never seen it i i, I, I all seen, i know like, yeah it i have seen it once but it like touches me on the shoulder sometimes 
um uh, like uh, it just holds me every time like i try to think negatively it just it just like some somebody's holding my shoulder in the back and then my mom was like creeped out there's no ghost here i was like no it's protecting me it has been protecting me my entire life it's a wonderful thing that's why i was when you were telling me about the life path that you're on now and that you know a lot of people are not supporting it understand that when you on a righteous path it's a very narrow one it's a very narrow one and you have to be very careful when on that narrow path because the forces the negative forces in this world they're going to approach you a lot stronger than they would someone else because they don't want you to accomplish something that's going to serve a greater purpose on this in this world because the purpose that many of us serve that are on that path is something that is outside of us is something so much greater that we're just the vessels that is pursuing that purpose for it to be achieved and that's our calling it's like that saying many are called but only few are chosen yeah and i like i like to believe that i'm one of those chosen few that have been called to answer the call of providing peace light positivity righteousness in the world the best way i know how and we you know we're not perfect we're still human we're in these bodies yeah. but we can pursue a perfect purpose yeah even though we're flawed in yeah. these bodies but the true essence of us is not flawed at all it is everything that encompasses the universe and it's all that is and that spiritual essence that is protecting you knows that it's already in that state of being. It just is protecting you for you to continue on your path to pursue and fulfill your purpose. And I had to tell you, everything happens for a reason. Like we were talking about yeah. yesterday, everything happens for a reason. And that reason is there to serve you. I truly believe that there's a reason why you and I are talking right now. Yeah. We're talking to a camera, but spiritually I'm seeing you as, I'm not really seeing you as Roshni. I'm seeing you as the true spiritual being that you are, which goes back to that book I told you about, the machismo yeah. paradox, fear of becoming a, ma a man. It all stems back to that scene. When I look at women, as much as I'm attracted to women, you know, I've always been attracted to older women when I was young. But obviously, like any man, I'm going to find a woman attractive based on physical features, right? But what I focus on more than anything is the spiritual essence within that female. So that way, I'm not so much judging them on how they look, even though I can recognize it, but I'm judging them and perceiving them on who they are, the content of their character, the look in their eyes. Can I see light in that soul? You know, like the windows, uh, the eyes are the windows to the soul. So I'm going to look into the eyes and see if there's light there. Because I'll tell you, I've seen some darkness and I run away <laughs> like, no, 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 I'm not dealing with that. You know, because I've had women approach me that are, I, I used to think were demons. They were succubus. I've dealt with a couple. So I'm very careful about the women. Matter of fact, I'm so careful now that I've been single for years now. Years. 
Now I've had my little flings here and there, but in the past, what, two and a half years, I haven't even dated. And, you know, my family's always like, why you don't have a girlfriend? Like, don't you feel yeah. alone? Like you're a good looking guy. Yeah. I'm it like, no, great. it's so I'm like, when that woman comes into my life, she'll come. But there's so much more important things for me to focus on than just having a relationship exactly. for the sake of having a relationship. Exactly. That's what my like that. That's what I told to my mom, because my mom is like always arranged marriage. You don't even have a guy. And then I'm like, yeah. every time I every time I want to focus on my business or stuff like this, um, like she because she, like, again, I like I also think that she in a way she regrets of not doing anything in her life because she, now she's a housewife. And um, she also wanted to do something in her life. Um, I, I feel that she really wanted to do something with her life. And now she's when uh, she sees me doing things, she's like, she feels she feels great. And she also feels bad in a way. Like, I feel like the demons are coming <laughs> like. And yeah, yeah, she hasn't realized that it's never too late. Yes. You know, because whatever she wants to do, I'm pretty sure she could do it right now. She just. What happens to a lot of us is we become complacent. We start to settle for less than what we truly want, and that becomes the norm and it becomes part of our life so much so that it becomes so much of our life that we even forget what we wanted in the first place. Well said. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, um, and also I realized that, like, some some days is like, she's fighting with me for no reason. It's like, then I kind yeah. of leave her alone. And then she comes back to her senses. It's like a daily challenge with the demons. And I, I don't want to, like, I don't want to hurt her anyway. And I don't want to, like, um, but she has to come to the realization that, she shouldn't like feed on her ego. The ego should be below 40%. If there is, uh, if ego can be measured in a number, it will, it should be below 40%. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's interesting. You say that um, I'm going to be into, excuse me. I'm going to be interviewing um, Robert Riopel on Tuesday. So I'm going to mention you and see if you guys can uh, link up yeah. and the title of our show that he's going to be on is called let go ego in private, not in public. Yeah. And one of the things Robert talks about that, he says, we all have ego. He says, the way that I unleash my ego is when I play video games. He's like, when I play video games, I talk a lot of smack. He's like, I get all into it. You know, I get very competitive, but he says, I let my ego go in a safe place. But he goes, when I go on stage and I talk to millions of people, and I do my coaching seminars, no ego. And I thought it was such a beautiful thing what he said, because he's very accurate on that. And it really affected me because the little that I've gotten to know him as a life coach, he's he's not even my life coach. He's just somebody that we're like colleagues. He's come on the show and we shared information. He promotes my content. I've promoted his. And I think he's a wonderful man. But when he said that to me, I was like, we got to talk more about this, like let go ego in private, not public. Yeah. Phenomenal, because I think everybody should do that. The problem is, especially here in America, is that people are living in that egoic state of mind 20, 
four, seven. It is a competitive rat race here in the United States. They're very much puppets. They they look at like what we talked about the pandemic. I mean, yeah. it's like you took the vaccine. Oh, yeah, because Dr. Fauci said that I should. <laughs> it's like no, yeah. you don't even know. You, you don't, don't even know even Dr. Know. Fauci. Yeah, you don't even know the doctors. I mean, like the thing is that like I know it's kind of delusional that everybody trusts someone they don't know. And that that's that's what I don't understand. It's like at first, like I was in this really complicated situation. And I know I I was in this uh let's say it's a very complicated situation. And the only way I could do this was through social media to like tell my truth through social media. And it came <laughs> to that. It came to that. Yeah. It came to that point. I stood away from social media for a yeah. long time, by the yeah. way. Yeah. But it came to that point because it was extremely complicated. Nobody knew my situation in the family, like uh, the loss of freedom. And this is what happened with my friend. She trusted someone else. And I'm like, don't do that. Trust me. You knew me. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? You're her best friend. Yeah. You knew me. You know me well. You don't know these people. You don't know any anything about these people. Trust the person who been telling you a lot of things. My private stuff. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, in, in, in America, and, and I guess all over the world, too, you, people are not comfortable in their own skin. And when they see somebody like you, yeah. and I'm only, you know, I can only imagine, but I'm saying when, when you have probably certain people around you, because you're, you're a driven woman that is very spiritual and has a great understanding of life and you're evolving in that understanding. There's a lot of people that are not on your level. And one thing you can't do is bring yourself down to their level because it'll hurt you. It'll be a detriment to your well-being. I've experienced that a lot. Higher and higher and higher. That's yeah. Right. The problem is with these people is they develop a lot of animosity. They develop a lot of envy, jealousy, because they see you as an inspiration of how they want to be, but they won't take the time out to figure out how to be like who they're supposed to be. So even though they know that what you're doing is inspiring and they want to be like that, they're not looking at it from within themselves. They're not looking with insight. They're looking with outside. And they're looking outside of themselves as something else. It's no different than people that are very much into sports. They're living vicariously through that sports person, whether it be football, basketball, soccer. In their eyes, they can imagine themselves being like them. But that person is actually living that reality while they're living it superficially within their own mind. And they're gravitating to it to where. The mind is very powerful so that you create this. They, they're creating this fantasy lifestyle within their mind, but they're still living this mediocre life be, below average because they're settling. And a lot of it is because of not just complacency, but laziness. 
is that they don't really want to take the time out and put the work to invest in themselves. Something that you had mentioned. They think the work is the academic studies. They think the work is the job, but that is not the work. The work is within you. Exactly. And you said something which which I put the sound by for is that the war is within ourselves. Yes. That was a very powerful statement. That's why I put it out on social media because it's something that needs to be yeah. heard. And it was something I wrote in the book as well. I wrote it on my blog as well. It's it's I can read it out to you, I think. Well, I'm going to read the book and then what I'm going to do is have you come on the show after I read it. But yeah, go ahead, read me the the line because this is definitely one of the things that I'm going to have you come on to the network of awareness and we can go in depth on on this book and, you know, all I, the good I stuff write, that's in it. Yeah, I write so many inspiring things. It's it's a shame that like uh, nobody like I was putting it out on social media as well. And uh, I was going to go to a magazine company to actually write. But they told me don't write for them. Don't write for companies because what you say is so powerful. So, okay, this is what I wrote. In all the bewildered surroundings, notice how things seem weird or out of place. The common act the same, the different remain intellect and stay in isolation, yet are being mentally stabbed for their actions. They don't flaunt unlike the rest. Society is the thickening fog that prevents you from owning your path. When you learn how to see through it with sheer labels, you simply become the master. The fog cannot no longer hinder your vision. I can fly with my wings to see everything from above is a fib in order to test the worthy. Life was about finding yourself prior to finding your mate. From where I stand, I clearly see my destiny before me as a red carpeted staircase immersed in light. All what I wish for is right in front of me. And you can also do the same if you ask yourself whether you've had enough. Destiny should be demanded. Being blind is when you take part in society's diversion that wasn't really meant for you. If you, chose to, if you choose to stay back, you'd never know what you were meant to be. And if you choose to climb the peaks, you'd win in all measures. Ask yourselves, are you here to win the battle or the ongoing war with yourselves? Mm. That's what I wrote. That's great. I'm looking forward to reading your book. You have you have a lot of um, you have a lot of keen insight because you know yourself and you're able to express it. That's why I was telling you for a young lady like yourself is very, you're going to feel very much alone, unfortunately, but there's part of your purpose to feel alone. Uh, I'm right there with you. You know, it's a lot of my peers, which I don't have many these days. I only have a few. And those are the people that really appreciate me. I don't keep people around me that are haters or jealous. I I got rid of all those people. They're done and done and over with. I don't look back. Not even a split second. I don't miss any of them either. These are, I, I let go of a relationship I had with a friend of mine for 23 years that I never thought me and him wouldn't be friends no more. It was the gentleman I told you that uh, me and him started a hip hop group together. 
But sometimes you just got to let people go because they're no good for you. But I'm going to tell you that um, it's important to stay on the path because you're not going to get a lot of publicity from where you think you might get it. You're not going to get a lot of attention. Like, you got to remember, a lot of these people that make a lot of money that are like movie stars or people that are prominent figures in industry, a lot of them are Satanists. A lot of them have sold their soul for money because Satan is good for that. He'll provide you all the riches of the world as long as you give homage to him. And he's very real. A lot of people think that Satan doesn't exist. And that's the greatest trick he ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. But that malevolent force is very much alive in this world today. And especially with the pandemic, it's revealing, it's unveiling that evil wickedness of the world. And it's, it's, it's showing its ugly head more and more each day. And it's working overtime as we speak. But us spirit beings that are not part of that agenda, we are the resistance to that evil force. I truly believe that. Speaking of, um, do you ever write poetry? Uh, a bit, but not so much because like, I like. Well, a lot of stuff that you write. If you ever want to share it on my, on my website, I have a, a section I'm developing called Emotions in Motion. And it's just very insightful poetry and stuff. But even some of the stuff you write, if you ever want to submit it for people to read, you're more than welcome. Um, which leads me to a story I want to tell you. I, I was pursued by an older woman in high school. She was a, a she worked for the high school. Mm-hmm. Not going to tell you who she was, but let's just say assistant principal. And she was 38 years old. And I was just turning I just turned 18. Now, technically, it's kind of considered pedophilia (laughs) because, you know, you're not supposed to be messing with a child in school if you're a school official, let alone a 38 year old woman. This woman pursued me, but I was very mature, 18 year old. And I pretty much denied her for like six months. She was married and all that, but she kept pursuing me and pursuing me. So I finally gave in. She was very attractive, too. She was a Puerto Rican woman. And um, I wrote a I wrote a sonnet. Now, when I was given an assignment in creative writing class in high school to write a sonnet, sonnets are based on love. Sonnets come from the days of the Renaissance from there's a there's a Shakespearean format. And then there's the Petrarchan format, which is the Italian sonnet form of writing. Now, in sonnets, there's a a certain. uh, etiquette or cadence that it has that you have to follow and all sonnets are about love that's what it's about but what i did was and this is how my mind works i tell you my mind goes a mile a minute or should i say a second but i told my teacher i never forget mrs sadron lover one of the best teachers i've ever had in my life and uh i had told i said uh is it possible and this was based on my experience with this woman i said is it possible that i can write a sonnet that is the deception of love, which is really infatuation and not love itself, instead of writing a sonnet about love. And she goes, hmm, interesting. She goes, I would very much look forward to reading that. She goes, go knock yourself out. I said, okay. Next day, came to class, wrote the sonnet. I'm going to read it to you. Okay. Well, I'm going to recite it to you because I haven't memorized 
It's called Lawless Love. I try to meet her tender fear at goal through the consequences of lawless love. Her passive appearance makes my mind move to thoughts that overwhelm my eager soul. This beautiful being playing a role in my lost tragic play, Romance Above. So my raw spirit explodes as I rove through the valley of lust, only to stroll in a dream that is forever tarnished. Caught in a web of infatuation, the spider is digesting me slowly. Poisonous emotions won't be cherished. Her love is a devious flirtation, while my knowledge for love is a pure quest. And when I submitted that to uh, my teacher, she said, uh, she says, uh, when you become famous, can you not forget about me? <laughs> and I was like, really? And she's like, this is the best work I've ever seen in my life. So she shared it with her colleagues from a college that live in Europe. And they wanted to pay for my plane ticket to go out there to, to recite some poetry. And then she told them, she says, well, that's not going to happen. And it was like, why? And they said, she said, because he's an 18 year old boy that still lives with his mother and he's in my class. He's in high school. And um, they thought I was like in my 60s. And when I wrote that, that whole entire sonnet was based on my experience with this woman. Because deep down inside, I knew it was wrong. Yeah. But I was 18 years old, you know. And listen, all my friends to this day, they still talk about it. They're like, you know, you're a legend in high school. But the <laughs> they used to call me the yeah. legend because so all like, the, the way all the write, teachers like them. Yeah, the way you write is also awesome. It's like the way you are Thank able you. to yeah, put your put whatever you feel into words. Like I believe only that happens like really rarely. Even my best friend, she can write, but she can't. She can't write about what she feels. And that's a that's a that's part of my company is emotions in motion and my service that I really haven't um, gotten to get it going yet because I haven't promoted it. But my service, what I used to do when I was younger, is like I told you the other day, where if you have a sentiment or something you want to express to somebody, but you don't know how to say it exactly how you want to say it but you know how you feel about it i'll i do a 15 minute consultation with you you give me key points on what that emotion and what you want to express and then i put it in poetic form for you to give to that person i used to do that and i used to get paid to do that one of my friends that i did that for his girlfriend broke up with him he gave her flowers with the poem that i wrote for her to, for him to give to her and he's like, dude, he calls me up. He's like, dude, best sex I ever had in my life. My girlfriend <laughs> took me back in. He's like, we're back together again. Best sex I ever had in my life. He's like, she is so happy from what, what, you know, what I gave her. He's like, I'm not going to tell her you wrote it, though. I was like, but I didn't write it. I said, yeah, I made it sound attractive. I, I, I put a little lipstick on it <laughs> and some eyeshadow. And maybe some blush, but that's coming from you. Yeah. I just I just decorated it. And that's what I want to do as a business. I want to 
provide that as a writing service. And I'm going to. I mean, it's already up on my that's site. Okay. I just haven't I promoted that, it. That's that's a beautiful business. <laughs> and like I said, a hundred bucks, that's yeah. not a lot of money. A hundred dollars for something that could last a lifetime, I think it's a great deal. Yeah, go for you know? it. Oh, I am. I am. It's just I got so much going on. I, I got music. I got artists that I'm working with now. I got the podcast. I do everything by myself. So trust me when I tell you, I can't wait to actually have somebody else helping me, just like an assistant or somebody that's just on my team handling the um, the social media administration aspect of it. I cannot wait for that day, <laughs> I tell you, because I stood away from social media. So it's like as much as I'm on it now promoting my services, because I'm not on social media like, hey, guys, I'm eating pancakes this morning, but. I do everything by myself. So it's a lot of work. Yes, it is. You know, it is like it's 16 hours a day. And nobody appreciates it. <laughs> no, but they do. Yeah. You appreciate it. Yeah. There's uh, other people like, appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, like, don't you're not alone. Don't think yeah. you're alone. There's a lot of righteous people that but, want the yeah. same thing you want for the world. And you have to keep that in mind. Don't allow these ignorant people, which I call the deaf, dumb and blind ones. Don't allow them to steal your thunder or your light. Yeah. You know, don't let the birds take your dreams it's away. Like, it's like people. No, I was saying that people from society think um, unappreciate what you're doing, but they do because they don't know the gravity of this. Uh, the gravity of what they don't understand the gravity of what, what you're doing, whether they how how it impacts the world they can't see the big picture and because they can't see the big picture yeah and a lot of it stems from the fact that you alluded to it yesterday they haven't won the war within themselves they haven't even won any battles within themselves they still have they're still struggling with a battle within themselves let alone the war that's going on within their very spirit the battle with themselves of being comfortable in their own skin of having something meaningful Having something that wakes them up in the morning without the alarm clock going off. You and I have that. We have that drive and we have that purpose that's meaningful that we've come to know and that we come to know more and more and evolve in more and more with time. And that's that's why for me. I don't get caught up in, in other people's nonsense anymore. That's why a lot of my family that doesn't talk to me no more before I used to be all like emotional about it. And now I, I don't care. It's like I know why my family, because a lot of them are vaccinated and they don't like what I say about the vaccines, because I'm going to tell you something. A lot of people here in America and abroad you know what one of their biggest problem is when it comes to the pandemic and when it comes to these inoculations they don't like, especially adults, they don't like being told that they did something wrong. Yeah. That's all it is. You did something wrong. You did something stupid. And I'm the, I'll be the first one to tell my family. You did something so stupid. Yeah. I, you trusted I, I, in men with, yes. with, you know, with degrees on the wall, with little stethoscopes around their neck. You trust that these men they have you your, they don't that, have your like, best I, interest yeah. in mind. Yes. I, I also I also told my parents that um, you trust completely unknown people without trusting your own daughter. And 
I, I kind of explained the science also between them and then, then they kind of were on my side afterwards. Became so unimportant. And I never forget uh, when I was at my sister's house, this was the day after he had died. No, this was three days after he was dead. And um, I came to my sister's house in Florida because he died in New York in my brother's house. He shot himself. And um, I never forget this day, man, when I came to my sister's house and we were all there. And I hugged my nephew, my other nephew, his brother, and I started crying and I kept saying sorry to him because I felt I, I felt like it was my fault for like a year. I literally thought that my nephew's dying was all my fault. You know, I felt like there's something that I should have did to prevent that from happening. Because I was kind of like his uh, spiritual guider and um, I felt like I failed. But long story short, I uh, never forget this day. ESPN was on. I used to watch ESPN. I used to be I'm still into mixed martial arts, but not like I used to be. But I still like the, the, the art of it, of fighting. And I think it's important to know how to fight, especially these days and time. But. When I was watching ESPN, the whole entire TV screen was like fragments of energy and it was nothing. It was like, like, that's all I saw. It was nothing there. It was like a blur. And I had this overwhelming surreal experience. Like I was in the matrix and like I was Neo and I saw everything as digital but as levels of waves of frequency. And I just started realizing at that very moment that none of this superficial materialistic stuff that we are heavily engaged in matters to the true essence of life. And from that point on, I stopped watching ESPN. I stopped following football and basketball. It was just like all of it just completely left my, my, my mind. And my body, it was just no longer holds relevance to this very day. If you ask me about the Yankees, I was named after a Yankee. I was named after Reggie Jackson. My father looks like Reggie Jackson, right? Because my, my family's like black, but from Puerto Rico. And there's that mixture of Hebrew, you know, slave being brought on the slave ships, but they were already there. I mean, it's the whole history behind it, but. What's interesting about that is that ever since that experience, the true meaning of life, I've, I'm evolving and understanding what we are really here for and what we really are, opposed to what we're told we are and the experience that we uh, hold so dear. For joining Teo podcast, The Pandemic Press. Yes, thank you for having me. And I hope that... Uh, you know, the li listeners got some great substance from it. And uh, if I could say one last thing is, hey, you know, people don't look for the light at the end of the tunnel. Be the light in the tunnel because the light is within you. So light up the tunnel and find your way through the darkness. Peace. Thank you for listening to another episode of Teo Podcast, The Petter Big Press. I am your host, Rashti Heva Wasam, and I'm signing out for the year. My book is available on Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles if you want to check it out. It's called Unveiling the Truth Behind Catherine's Destiny. Anyways, uh, we'll see you guys on January 4, 2022 with some new and exciting episodes.